what I think would have been a more effective strategy is not to avoid failure, but rather to learn how to come back from it as quickly as possible, to accept it, to not let it be such a defining kind of thing that keeps you down for so long, but rather to almost enjoy it as a part of the learning process. Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the wins and fails of innovators, brought to you by CDTM in Munich. Welcome back to the third season of Mostly Awesome, where we talk to changemakers and innovators with foreign roots to get inspired by their stories and also understand all the odds they had to beat to get to where they are today. Today, we're talking to Sona Chandra, founder of Terralumina, an AI-based drug discovery platform. Sona has practically lived all over the world, but has always stayed true to her love for science and health. She initially studied biomedical engineering at Georgia Tech, in order to get to medical school. During her studies, Sona realized that she could have a much bigger impact by combining her passion for health with technology. She successfully co-founded Oshi Health in the US, a digital health platform that supports patients with chronic digestive issues. After a successful funding round, Sona left Oshi in order to move to Berlin. There, she started her biotech company, Terra Lumina. Now prepare yourself for a deep dive into the world of health tech and drug discovery with Sona, who was named Forbes 30 under 30 in Europe just last year. We begin this episode with Sona's cross-continental journey and understanding how a person of Indian origin, who is actually a citizen of Australia, gets educated in the US and eventually lands up in Berlin to become a two-time startup founder. Mind you, all of this happened in Sona's life well before she turned 30, and that perhaps explains how she ended up receiving the coveted Forbes 30 Under 30 award. Sona is a qualified biomedical engineer who speaks educatedly and passionately about drug discovery and healthcare. One can tell from her responses that she's determined to make a dent in how we as a civilization discover and engineer medicines. As someone who has been undertaking entrepreneurial pursuits for the better part of the last five years, she shared her thoughts on support systems, dealing with failures, and building a muscle for resilience. One thing that stood out in this episode is the ease and fluency with which Sona explains the nuances of a complex domain like drug discovery. She is able to do it without drowning us in technical jargon and still educating us in why the process is inefficient by design and how she and her team at Terra Lumina have set out to fix it. Sounds interesting, right? Let's jump right in. Welcome, Sona. It's really great to have you here. Thanks, guys, for having me. I'm really excited to join the show and then share more about my journey. Great. Looking at your journey, we found it super fascinating that you moved a lot, like almost 10 times. First question would be, why so often? Yeah, no, that's true. I have moved around quite a bit in my life. And I think that the early sort of time frame of my life in terms of moving around came a lot um, from the, the family that I was a part of. My parents are immigrants from India. They initially left India and moved to Australia, which is where I was born. And after you know two years, they decided to move to the U.S. to chase the American dream. They had heard about this great country, the land of opportunity. You know, I still believe one of the best places that offers some of the best opportunities for, for social mobility. And so that was kind of what initially brought us to the U.S. And, and along similar lines, because my parents grew up from such kind of humble beginnings, 
beginnings. They came to the U.S. with a really pie-in-the-sky sort of dream of building their careers and lifting the family. And so to that end, they chased the career opportunities. I'm actually lucky enough to, to grow up in a family where my mom was the one that was building her career. And so based on new job opportunities that kind of opened up to her, we ended up moving to kind of help enable that. And so that was kind of the first part of the story as to why I moved around so often. Um, but it doesn't really explain the second part as to why even after I, I went to university, why I continue to still move. I think that I've always kind of had a little bit of an international mindset and a fascination for other cultures. And during university, I, I had the opportunity of studying abroad in Europe, where I really just fell in love with the mindset and kind of the diversity that exists there when it comes to the different languages and the different sort of ways of thinking about life. And that's part of the reason why I, I wanted to move to Europe after graduating. And so this is sort of ultimately why I've moved around so much in my life. Uh, from all the places where you've lived before, which city is your favorite? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm actually lucky enough to live in my current favorite city, which is Berlin. For me, part of the reason why I love Berlin is that it has such an interesting and unique history that you can still very much feel on a day-to-day -day basis of being there. And I think in line with kind of the history, Berlin is, is one of the most youthful and vibrant cities that I've ever experienced. Again, the diversity of thought and kind of um, vivaciousness in that city is really an environment that I thrive in. And I also really like that people there stay young in their minds for, for quite some time. There's not this kind of arbitrary graduation out of youth that you might often experience in other cities. Yeah, I've lived in Berlin and couldn't agree with you more. Such a vibrant and vivid city, right? But moving so often, is there a place that you primarily consider as home at the time? Not really. I would say actually all of the, the cities that I've lived in have influenced me in some way and, and therefore occupy a place in my heart when it comes to thinking about home. So really all of them. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Your home is the world, basically. <laughs> But what does being a global citizen mean to you? And do you consider yourself to be a global citizen? Yeah, I think that I, I would. I think that to me, being a global citizen means being able to take the best elements of various cultures and incorporate that into your life. At this point now, after living in Europe for six years, I, I sort of consider myself a bit of a Euro-American, but I also have these Indian roots behind me and citizen of Australia, right? And so I think that what that has given me is the opportunity to expose myself to a variety of different cultures and ways of thinking and take the pieces that I really like from different cultures to create kind of this new type of culture. So a bit of a borderless sort of culture mentality. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of studies that show how the exposure to different cultures facilitates innovation. And in this context, do you think that your cross-continental journey gives you an edge as a founder? Yeah, I think so. I think that it primarily is an advantage, in particular when it comes to empathizing and understanding a variety of different perspectives from a variety of different people. I think that that is one of the biggest advantages to, to having this kind of global mindset. Could you give an example where you felt that really strong, that you have this ability to understand better? You know, now I'm in the process of founding this company and I'm hiring my early team. And so far, what it's shaping up to be is that almost every single person on the team is going to come from a different country, which requires a really kind of unique perspective to keep everyone cohesive. It's also a unique kind of territory for me since my previous company, Oshi, was actually primarily Americans working there. So now I'm sort of in a position where I'll be leading a team from folks who are from a variety of different backgrounds. And I think 
coming from a variety of different backgrounds myself gives me the opportunity to basically understand the different perspectives and, and sort of backgrounds that people are bringing to the table and, and maybe even more importantly, understand what I don't understand so that I, I can give people a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. And when misunderstandings and miscommunications happen, I'm able to keep in the back of my mind, okay, there might be cultural differences that are driving this lack of communication and lack of cohesion. And that allows me to basically be a more effective leader when it comes to this diverse team. Great. Do you think there are disadvantages of being so diverse? I think that the disadvantage for me comes less from being sort of multiple cultures in one person, more, maybe more when it comes to the lack of a home, a real true home. Sometimes when I compare myself to people who are you know, born and were raised and are continuing to live in the same 10 mile radius, where maybe I sometimes envy them is that they have a sense of stability and a sort of groundedness to them that maybe I sort of lack from having been uprooted so many times in my life. So there may be one of the biggest disadvantages is that there's a little bit of a lack of stability when it comes to the life that you've led and then maybe also your core identity. Other strategies or approaches that you take to kind of level up this stability issue for yourself? I think it's always really important to to build a strong support system. And I think maybe coming back to the advantage of moving around so much is that I think that I've really built a strong muscle for being able to build a support system in a community in a new place rather quickly. So I think that this is this is something where I I sort of have developed new strategies for creating that sense of stability and support, even in new cities and new places where, where that stability is inherently not present. Actually, quite a practical skill for a founder. And speaking of which, You've recently started Terra Lumina and also a co-founder of Oshi. Uh, both of the companies are operating in the healthcare space. So we were wondering, were you always so sure that you wanted to stay in the health sector? And uh, could you tell our listeners the story of how you actually got there? Sure, sure. So from a really young age, I knew I wanted to go into healthcare. Since I was six, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. I was always really fascinated with science. That was the subject that I did best in school. But also, I think the the deeper kind of impact of helping people and devoting your life into a, a career path that that truly is bringing health and happiness to, to other people is something that was I was always drawn to. So I actually went to university. I studied biomedical engineering. But in the U.S., you kind of start with your bachelor's before going to medical school. And so I actually walked into university thinking that I would eventually apply to medical school. But as I was sort of studying biomedical engineering and really applying healthcare with technology, I realized there's this huge opportunity to make an even bigger impact on an even grander scale by combining technology with my, my deep love of science and health. And so that's ultimately how I ended up coming upon this career path. And I definitely couldn't imagine myself doing anything differently. And in one of the interviews, you called yourself a fake doctor, meaning that you had exposure to hospital setting. So do you think being a fake doctor in a sense important to start in digital healthcare venture or are there like way to catch up with the skills or like exposure to the field? Yeah, I do think that it is very important for any founder, in particular in healthcare, to immerse themselves and get a deep understanding of the, the healthcare landscape. It's very difficult, I think, to come into healthcare from another industry without learning the ins and outs of how the industry operates itself. And that includes, I think, some element of exposure to the way that people are treated and the science behind the delivery of healthcare itself. I think that it's probably not as necessary, at least in certain domains, to go extremely 
extremely deep into specifically how care is delivered, what protocols clinicians follow to actually drive outcomes for their patients. But it's important to, to at least understand at a high level how these decisions are made and, and really how the, the mechanics of healthcare operate. And what are the other core skills that you would say a founder who wants to found in a healthcare space needs? With specific to, to healthcare, again, I would say um, a deep understanding of the actual industry itself. Mm -hmm. It's a very complicated industry with a number of different stakeholders involved. You have clinicians, you have hospitals, you have payers or insurers, you have pharmaceutical companies, you have the patient. And really the challenging part about all of this is that most of these stakeholders have very misaligned incentives. And so when you want to drive innovation in healthcare, you have to really get an understanding of what are the problems that are out there. But also, I think equally important is how to basically implement and drive your innovation within the complexity of the, the healthcare ecosystem. I think, you know, in health tech specifically, there's no lack of problems to be solved. Very, very challenging to actually figure out how to implement and, and scale up your technology within the current healthcare paradigm. And so making sure that you really understand that the mechanics of the healthcare industry overall is crucial, I think, to innovating in healthcare. Yeah, couldn't agree more. How would you recommend someone who wants to start to catch up with the skills faster? So your background was in biomedical engineering, but still you're talking more about stakeholder management and so on and so forth and exposure to industry. How would someone get these skills? So I would say that the answer is kind of twofold. The first is read, 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 read as much as possible. I think that a founder needs to constantly be learning and, and growing and, and reading as much as possible. There's a lot of information material out there that can form a strong basis of knowledge when it comes to the healthcare industry. And then the second answer to that would be talk to as many people as you can um, and get as many unique perspectives from as many stakeholders in the system as possible. You previously co-founded Oshi Health. And this is a platform that helps patients to gain control over chronic digestive conditions. What is the key challenge you experienced developing such a platform? Yeah, so actually the initial concept for Oshi was really born out of studying the patient journey for a wide variety of gastrointestinal conditions, where we realized that really two major things. One, that there was not enough continuity of care between appointments and patients were really feeling like they were left alone to manage their condition once they left the doctor's office. And two, that care was broadly speaking, not very personalized at all. The way that care was delivered was very much in a one size fits all kind of approach when in reality, especially in digestive health conditions, it's a very heterogeneous disease area, which means that no two patients are alike. And ultimately, we felt that this was driving what we currently see in, in the digestive health paradigm, which is extremely high costs for poor outcomes. And so the, the V1 version of OSHI was really a digital therapeutics platform to support the, the remote monitoring and personalization of care for patients. Ultimately, what we found was that by combining patient-reported outcome data that's collected via, via an application on key symptoms with data from an at-home fecal calprotectin test, so a stool test that measured a specific inflammatory marker, that you could monitor patient disease activity over time and initiate an intervention when you recognize that the patient's disease was, was worsening so that you could really prevent the, the worsening of their condition. And we went out and studied this model. We proved that it was great and it worked. And, and actually, when we tried to implement and scale it, we realized that there is a very conflicting set of incentives in the market when it came to adopting this technology. The success of our technology was really based on clinicians buying into it and actually acting on the, the data and, and the results that came out from it. Most doctors are paid on a fee-for-service basis, which means that anytime they, they perform a, a service, they end up having to pay some sort of fee. 50% of a gastroenterologist 
radiologists' revenue comes from and procedures, endoscopies and colonoscopies. And what we found was that actually our product competed with that income stream because we, we sort of eliminated the need for unnecessary endoscopies and colonoscopies. This was before some of the new procedural codes came out for doctors to be able to charge and bill for remote monitoring and things of that nature. And so we hit a little bit of an obstacle when it came to, okay, we built this great technology, but no clinician actually wants to recommend it. So what do we do then? And so we actually decided to end up pivoting to becoming a virtual provider practice ourselves, where we actually ended up building a, a gastrointestinal health practice with actual clinicians on board our platform, gastroenterologists, dietitians, psychologists, and health coaches. We trained them on proprietary clinical protocols and powered them with a digital front end that really enabled personalized and, and, and continuous access to care. Ultimately, we ended up being able to implement some of the cooler approaches like the OCV1 within our framework. And because we were the clinician, we would make sure that our clinicians could act on that data and really drive this enhanced care and ultimately felt that this was the right kind of pivot in our strategy and approach. So this challenge really ended up being a blessing in disguise when it came to landing on the right business model for, for what it is we wanted to drive. And given that you entered the healthcare space because you felt that there is the maximum impact that you can make, what made you enter this gastroenterological space? The interesting thing about gastrointestinal conditions are that they really impact a large portion of the population. If you look at IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, it impacts around 18 to 20% of the population. And yet, you know, these are folks that are really given the run around the healthcare system. They'll go to their general practitioner and their GP will kind of be like, you're just having tummy problems, go home, eat some fiber, you're fine. And yet these people are suffering without really anyone to turn to or anyone to help. And we found this time and time again, as we interviewed and spoke with patients, and I can even tell you, my own mom has suffered from gut health con conditions herself and, and struggled her whole life trying to find the right combination of diet and exercise and other approaches to basically manage her symptoms. And so recognizing that this is such a huge patient population that is really suffering, I, I felt like this was a great opportunity for me to make an impact with OSHI to really drive advancements in that in that care paradigm. So moving a bit into your founding story, we were wondering how did you recruit your founding team and what kind of people were you looking for? Or were you even looking for someone with specific criteria? So maybe I can answer this from the perspective of Terra Lumina. So Terra Lumina is a platform where we really want to use AI to unlock the therapeutic potential of nature's small molecules. Ultimately, I wanted to bring on board a co-founder who really had a deep expertise in cheminformatics or really the application of data science in, in the handling of chemical data, as well as a wealth of experience in AI and drug discovery. There's kind of the domain expertise and skill set side of things that's very important. And I think equally as important is the ability to lead a team and really thrive within a startup environment, the ability to kind of build something working towards a grand vision, but from a practical step-by-step -step kind of executional approach. And ultimately, I felt that finding the sweet spot between these two profiles is really challenging. There's also a third element, which is our personal compatibility. You know, as, as a co-founding team, you are going to be working day in and day out together on a very stressful topic, trying to deliver the world in a very short time period with very limited resources. And so it's crucially important that you identify a co-founder that you really vibe with and who, who understands you on a deeper level. We've all heard the analogy that it's kind of like a marriage. So in defining the three kind of areas that I need to balance, I set out to identify the right person who really met those three dimensions and was lucky enough to find my co-founder, Andreas, who is a world-renowned expert in the space of AI and drug discovery and chem informatics. And I'm really excited to, to have him by my side on this journey. 
Great. Yeah, you already started talking about Terra Lumina. We're going to move on to that area of your life in more detail. But just last question for this blog would be, we know that you left Oshi Health after a successful financing round. So we were wondering how that happened or why that happened. <laughs> no, absolutely. So ultimately, I felt that, you know, after five years with the company, I had sort of grown and developed a lot when it came to that particular domain of work. I think that the company itself ended up pursuing a really strong business model. And I'm really excited about where we landed with Oshi. Ultimately, from a personal standpoint, I felt I wanted to grow and expand my career a little bit on the deeper tech side of things when it comes to the application of technology and life sciences. I felt Oshi has a really strong business model when it comes to the tech-enabled services play, where really the innovation is coming from how we designed novel clinical protocols using technology as an enabling function to optimize care at a lower cost. And while I think it was an amazing journey, I felt this kind of gravitational pull towards a deeper tech solution. And so ultimately, for my own personal passion and learning, I decided to take a step back from my role as an operator and, and join the advisory board. I see. Thanks a lot for sharing your journey with Oshi Health. And now we will move more towards how you entered the AI space and talk more specifically about Terra Lumina in our next block. So Sona, Terra Lumina develops an AI-based solution, as you've mentioned before. So what actually sparked your interest in AI to begin with? Yeah, so I would say that the interest in AI came from where I believe there is this huge opportunity to drive innovation, specifically in life sciences. You know, as I mentioned before, I've always known I wanted to be in healthcare technology and life sciences, and I probably will always be in that space. And one of the things we've all heard about is this explosion of data when it comes to the life sciences space. Explosion of data means huge opportunities to drive new insights and drive new ways of doing things within the industry. And to me, AI is kind of a great enabling technology for making sense of large quantities of data and generating insights that can really leverage this large quantity of data into something actionable and tangible. And so for me, it came from wanting to do something meaningful and impactful in life sciences, understanding the opportunity for data and applying AI as a technology to, to both of those things. Yeah, great. And what was the ideation process like for Terra Lumina? How did you decide that that was the idea that you wanted to pursue? Yeah, sure. So it came from really reflecting a lot of my personal experiences where I grew up in an Indian family, but in the US and was always exposed to the world of plant-based and traditional medicines from a really young age, kind of neck and neck with my experience with Western medicine. And when I look at the history of medicine, it feels like nature was always very central to our medical tradition. Even in the world of pharma, something like 60% of the drugs in the market today actually come from nature, which is why it was so surprising to me that something like less than 1% of small molecules within nature have been effectively mapped and characterized. And so here we are at a time point in history where there's significant explosion in terms of unmet healthcare needs that exist out there. 70% of modern day diseases actually don't have any kind of approved treatment. The rate of new drug approvals has dropped significantly over the last 30 years. And so we're at a time point where we're in desperate need of new therapeutics and nature is this rich source of possible value. And yet there's not really this linkage between the two. And so that's what inspired Terra Luna, where we want to basically take a computational approach to unlocking the value of nature as a source of inspiration for compounds. Great. And then to help our listeners uh, a bit, what is a data-driven drug discovery and why is it important? Yeah, maybe to explain why it's important, I want to take a step back and, and talk a little bit about how it's done 
more traditionally. Drug discovery is very much likened to finding a needle in the haystack, traditional drug discovery. At this point, what you're doing is you are taking large screening libraries of compounds and you're testing them in brute force, testing them one at a time against possible use cases. Right now, they do it in, in a process called high throughput screening, where you can imagine large pieces of machinery that are physically testing compounds against specific targets. And so typically you would have to screen for thousands and thousands, maybe millions of molecules to identify a hit compound that is relevant for a specific use case. And this process is extremely lengthy. It takes about five to six years to even identify a compound that's relevant for a specific therapeutic area. And so this paradigm is very inefficient. It's extremely expensive. And, and there are far greater ways that we can leverage computational approaches to accelerate this whole process and, and make it far more efficient. Now, coming to data-driven drug discovery, data-driven drug discovery can cover a number of different different elements. But really, I think the key point we're trying to drive here is that we can screen for novel compound target relationships in, in silico so that you don't actually have to physically test all these compounds and spend all this money and time on actually identifying a novel compound using these more kind of traditional mechanisms. You can actually do all of that automatically in a computational platform and nominate a high potential hypothesis that you then can be experimentally validated once it's been identified. Thanks for clarifying. You mentioned quite a lot natural compounds, and we were wondering, are synthetic compounds now dominating in drug discovery? Yes. So the vast majority of pharmaceutical drug discovery programs now are focused on synthetic compounds as a source of therapeutics. Mm -hmm. Can you also talk about why you're focusing on natural components? From my understanding, there was a reason why so many years ago, pharma companies just shifted towards synthetic components. So how do you think about it and why you want to make this step back and then continue from where we deviated? Sure, sure. So natural compounds, broadly speaking, offer a number of competitive advantages when it comes to drug discovery. Broadly speaking, natural compounds offer a significantly richer expanse of chemical and functional diversity with which to screen for possible bioactivity. So for example, if you take a library of, of 500 synthetic chemicals and you compare that to a library of 500 natural compounds, the natural compounds library is 100 times more likely or, or has 100 times higher hit rate in terms of bioactivity than the synthetic chemical library, just because natural compound chemistry tends to be more bioactive. The, the third is that there are emerging classes of targets now that are coming out. So these targets are biological targets within the body that are linked to some kind of disease pathology. There are emerging classes of targets, for example, protein-protein interactions that require novel chemistry to basically address. And, and natural compounds are a great source of this kind of novel chemistry, in particular when it comes to protein-protein interactions, because they tend to have greater rigidity. And finally, I mentioned before, 60% of the drugs on the market today come from nature. 77% of those are related to their traditional medicine or ethnobotanical use case. So our ancestors have actually collected a lot of knowledge and wisdom around the use of and safety and efficacy of plants and other kind of kingdoms of life when it comes to the management of health and disease that no one has really effectively gone and pulled together. To, to query as a hypothesis substantiation engine. And there's a ton of this historical wisdom that can be used to basically substantiate hypotheses, as well as to justify things like safety and efficacy. 
And so these are some of the reasons why we believe natural compounds offer a significant competitive edge. Now you asked if it's so great, why is Farber not doing this? Are we going backwards? So it's sort of widely accepted that natural compounds are a rich source of possible therapeutic value. However, the current available techniques for doing this kind of research are riddled with challenges and limitations. Today, with the available approaches in natural compound discovery, broadly speaking, this is what you would have to do. You would take a sample, let's say a plant, perform an extraction, and then you have to do a process called bioactivity-guided fractionation, where you're basically testing that sample in a bioassay, progressively fractionating the sample until you identify the part of the sample that is actually driving that bioactivity. And so you have to just constantly fractionate and test until you get to the point of um, isolating the bioactive compound of interest. Um, and that is that process is, again, likened to finding a needle in the haystack, a huge back and forth process there. If you are lucky enough to actually find a bioactive compound, then you would um, perform some kind of analytical um, analysis of the compound itself using techniques like mass spectrometry. And oftentimes what happens at this stage is people would have spent all this time doing this research, isolating a bioactive compound, only to realize that the compound that they discovered had already been known about before. And this is something called duplication. Then, you know, in this back and forth testing process, you're really limited to testing things one at a time, one, one sample against one target. And this generally is, is very inefficient because a compound might be inactive for one specific target, but could be active for a number of other targets. And just simply because it wasn't tested for that, that information was not illuminated. And then finally, if you are actually lucky enough to have identified a natural compound, proven that it works, validated it preclinically and, and clinically, now it's time to basically commercially scale up this product. This is just largely expensive and inefficient. And for these reasons, amongst other things, pharmaceutical companies decided to move away, divest in their natural compound discovery programs in favor of more synthetic chemical programs that were compatible with some advancements in the technology at that time. For example, combinatorial chemistry and high throughput screening. And so this is part of the reason why natural compounds are not really the main source of inspiration for drugs. Now, we believe that with the advancements in data and AI and technology, we have the opportunity to basically reopen the door to nature as a source of inspiration for therapeutic compounds. We believe that if less than 1% of, of these compounds have driven 60% of the drugs in the market, then let's just imagine how many compounds and drugs we can discover by actually going and exploring the remaining 99%. And that's really the basis and the value proposition of what we're bringing to the table with Terra Wow, that sounds like a massive plan. Thanks for the explanation. We were also wondering, in this area, where Terra Lumina positioned itself, do you see yourself as a pharmaceutical company in some years from now, or rather support other pharmaceutical companies in the drug discovery processes? Yeah, yeah. So our North Star is to become an AI-driven biopharma ourselves, where this platform kind of sits at the core of our entire R&D strategy and serves as our discovery engine, where we would make discoveries and, and validate the discoveries until they reach first in human trials, at which point we would then license them to a biopharma company for downstream clinical development. In the near term, we also believe that we can add value to compounds in existing pipelines by generating key insights using our platform that we can then partner with companies to basically um, enhance their research and development efforts. So where in the process do we fit in? I believe that Terra Lumina is an early stage drug discovery company, which means that our platform is used to nominate a high potential therapeutic hypothesis that we would then validate experimentally and therefore replace this kind of upfront compound identification part of the equation. How do we want to make a vision happen from a product standpoint? 
You mentioned that Terra Lumina is a platform and we were wondering how does it actually look like? Does it include a database of compounds and some sort of AI algorithm that matches all these compounds? The most simple way to explain what we're building is we want to go out and build the world's largest data set of natural compounds from plants and other kingdoms of life with a portfolio of AI that can unlock the value of those compounds in human health so that we can generate really well-defined therapeutic hypotheses. Once we identify a lead structure from nature, we will then also use AI to basically optimize that compound for key chemical properties to maximize how it actually works in your body, as well as to make it more easy to synthesize using traditional medicinal chemistry approach. Okay, and uh, pharma market is actually largely dominated by monopolies, and these companies appear to have it all. So they have labs, great talent, legal support, and they operate in the space for like decades already. How does Terra Lumina fit into this picture? How do you want to enter the market? Yeah, so even though pharma has this really robust kind of set of resources and a strong foundation, it's still riddled with challenges. So we're all familiar with the story that it takes, you know, 10 years and something like 1.2 to 2.6 billion to actually bring a new drug to market. And, and every step along that way is a challenge. Even to get a compound ready to actually go into first in human trials, there's only 15% of compounds actually make it to that point. And so there's a lot of money and time that's actually wasted in the current drug discovery and development process that pharma is operating under. Therefore, there's a huge room for improvement when it comes to every step really in this drug discovery process. I believe that Terralumina adds a significant value to the early stage drug discovery by opening the chemical space with which to screen for significantly compared to the current screening libraries that are used. This year has been a great year for AI and drug discovery. We had two major companies in the space, IPO, Recursion, Accentia, and many examples of companies that have used AI to generate predictions and bring products to phase one clinical trials in a fraction of the time that it traditionally takes. It's starting to become established what the promise of AI is in drug discovery, and we are building on that by then first further opening the door to a much broader source of possible therapeutic compounds with which to screen for. And was there any strategic choice of starting a company in Germany? I would say the biggest strategic advantage that I've seen in Germany is actually when it comes to talent recruitment. So what we're finding is that there's actually quite a bit of this kind of talent, specifically on the scientific and technical side of things, who have this domain and expertise and skill set, who don't really have very many options when it comes to possible career paths. Many of them have the option to stay in academia. Maybe there's the option to go into big pharma. But really cool young startup is kind of this third new option that is allowing us to basically attract and get a lot of really interesting kind of applications in our talent pool. And from that perspective, I believe we're, we are pulling together a, a class A kind of team within Germany, which is really exciting. Yeah, talent is, of course, really important part of the venture creation, especially in, in such an early stage. And regarding market, are there any biggest challenges that you face right now or see in the future? And what are your greatest fears with regards to your new venture? As I mentioned, our North Star is to become an AI-driven biopharma company. In the near term, we want to partner with companies that have an, an existing early stage pipeline to be able to basically support and drive their research and development efforts. I believe that when it comes to both of these elements, we will be able to support companies in a bit of a geography agnostic way. So I, I don't actually think that, at least in the part of the process that we're playing in, the specific country or market has 
as much of an impact as it would if we were operating in the later stage of development where we're actually commercializing new pharmaceutical products. I also believe that there's a ton of pharmaceutical companies in Europe that allows us to basically geographically be well positioned to build these relationships with the local kind of companies here. And what are the greatest fears? I think that the biggest defensibility of our company is going to come from being able to generate this large data set of natural compounds. As I mentioned, we, we have the ambition of basically building the world's largest data set of, of natural compounds from plants and other kingdoms of life. And to that end, it's this crazy, big, hairy goal that has a number of challenges associated when it comes to sourcing of plant materials, analysis of the actual plant organism itself. And there's a number of hurdles and obstacles to jump over. But I would say this is one of the biggest points in our strategy that we'll need to kind of pay attention to. You founded Oshi Health and Terra Lumina, both of which we've talked about. Looking back, how do these two experiences differ for you? Do they have two different meanings in your life? Yeah, I would say that the two are definitely quite different. A, because of the sort of product itself and, and, and part of the healthcare paradigm that we're playing in, right? With Oshi, we're very much patient-facing patient care, where we are operating at the point of care delivery, directly with clinicians and, and directly impacting patient outcomes. Whereas with Terralumina, I'm almost moving at the total opposite direction of the kind of value chain of actually identifying novel therapeutics and more on the deep tech and deep science side of the equation there. And so I would say for me, the, the kinds of questions and decisions that I have to make are rather different between the two companies. I think the kinds of people that I'm interacting with, even the end customer of who it is that we're really delivering to is a little bit of a different kind of equation. That being said, I think that for me on a personal level, my passion for, for both really does come from the, the end goal of being able to deliver very high quality healthcare and life-saving medicines to, to patients. And so the motivating factor behind what drives me is, is rather the same across both. Great. We were also wondering how or where do you get energy when something doesn't go well? Or is there any strategies that help you to kind of preserve your personal energy when you're facing any kinds of challenges? Yeah, I think every day as an entrepreneur, there's some obstacle. And therefore, it's especially important to create a routine or a set of tools in your toolkit to basically manage and handle the obstacles that come your way. For me, I've relied a lot on yoga and meditation as a way to keep grounded and reconnect with sort of the, the deeper meaning behind all of this. And I think that to me has been probably one of my biggest grounding forces for helping get through some of these challenging and tough times. The second, of course, is support system, family and friends. I'm really blessed to have a very, very supportive family who are also very helpful and intelligent people who can actually not just provide words of, of comfort, but can actually tangibly give advice on some of the challenges that I'm dealing with from a business standpoint. And they really go to the ends of the earth to support me. And I feel really blessed to have them in my life. So spending time with friends and family when things are not going so well, I think is crucial to, again, stay grounded and reconnect with why it is that you're starting this journey in the first place. Great. It's interesting. Looking back at some of the previous episodes, a lot of our guests have pointed this out. Having this support mechanism around you seems to be one of the most important things for 
founders. Okay, now we can ask a question that our previous guest actually left for you. So we have this tradition where every current guest leaves a question for the next one without knowing who they are. So the question for you from our previous guest is, in your opinion, to what extent is it possible to have a child and found a company at the same time? Well, I don't have a child, so I don't I don't want to make any speculations here. I would imagine that it's really hard. I can tell you right now, I don't have a child, I don't have a partner, and it's still really hard um, to, to basically manage my work in my life. You know, sometimes I'm I'm even sort of forgetting to to make time to eat food. So I can imagine that it's basically even more challenging to basically have to have to be responsible for another person. That being said, you know, what I've witnessed a lot with with women, especially is that after they have a child, they often get more organized and more intelligent, particularly because they have this extra person to deal with, that gives them a motivation to take care of things that's outside of themselves. You know, oftentimes, it's hard to motivate ourselves to do things just for our own selves. We're like, ah, I don't need that. But when it's like a child that's that you're responsible for, it suddenly becomes of that most importance. And so I have seen a lot of people actually get even more organized and more on top of things. And so I think that it certainly can be done, but it needs to have the right, again, support system and, and the right kind of organization to basically make it effective. Definitely. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your thoughts about it. I think this is a topic that actually very frequently comes up among young entrepreneurs who want to found. I've heard this conversation a lot of times at CityTM. So I actually regret not asking this question to every single guest that we've had before. All right, great. Forbes 30 under 30. So it's a goal for many entrepreneurs, right? How did that happen for you? And what did this experience mean for you? Yeah, I would say that I was nominated for this award by a number of my mentors and kind of previous leaders who, who had sort of witnessed my journey, in particular founding Oshi and sort of scaling and implementing that technology. And so I think that they were in particular impressed with the ability for me to learn and adapt and grow extremely quickly. And to me, I think that that's probably what the reward is meant to represent is young people that have this ability to develop at an exponential pace more than what, what is traditionally kind of possible. And I think the second element there is people who are willing to take risks and do things that are maybe not traditional and not part of the conventional path that is laid out for you. You know, a lot of people might have said that I'm a little too young to be starting companies and things of that nature. And shouldn't I rather go and get more experience and, and work in industry and, and things of that nature? And so I think that the Forbes starting under 30 is really a testament to people who have been bold enough to take that risk, make that jump and and understand their limitations and do whatever it takes to basically complement that. And, and, and when it comes to learning as well as surrounding yourself with the right advisors and mentors. So to me, that's, I think, how I ended up getting the Forbes 30 or 30 award. How did it change life for me? I think that it helps to open doors. I think that people are probably a little bit more willing to engage with me in particular. As an entrepreneur, you can't be afraid of cold outreach. You're constantly reaching out to people who, who you've never met before, and you're asking them to do things for you and to help you. And so I think that it helps give a sense of legitimacy in terms of who, who the heck is reaching out to me right now. Okay. I guess she must know something if she's made it on this list, right? So I think that it's helped to kind of give a, a little bit of a foundation for credibility when it comes to a lot of my work. If you weren't a founder, what do you think you would be doing today and why? Like I said, I've always known that I wanted to be in healthcare. I rapidly fell in love with healthcare technology and ended up being a founder because I felt as a part of my role with Takeda, we, we wanted to make the difference. We identified this problem and ultimately we felt that founding a separate legal entity that was single-mindedly focused on solving that one problem was the best way to address that. But aside from that, I think that I would be driving the implementation of technology across healthcare in some way, shape, or form, whether it's actually staying within an existing 
existing kind of traditional player at like a pharmaceutical company or a medical device player, maybe joining a startup myself, even if I wasn't necessarily the founder. It could even be going into venture capital and actually being the enabling function for those who have these great, brilliant ideas and driving innovation. But whatever it is, I know that I would want to play a, a significant part in the implementation of new innovation in, in that space. Other areas in healthcare that, in your opinion, are totally overlooked? Or is there any direction that you would point others to look at and improve in there? Yeah, maybe it's not necessarily that no one's looking to it, but that the market is not super effective yet for it, which is prevention. I think that we probably hear about this quite a bit, where we live in a world where our healthcare system is reactive in the sense that you wait until you get sick and then you go to the doctor to reverse your illness. When in reality, we, we would all be much better off if we focused on building a healthcare paradigm where we focused on prevention, where we identified what path you're headed towards, what conditions or, or sort of health ailments might be, might be coming your way and rather focusing on ways to prevent that from happening. I think that there's a lot of activity being done on this from a wellness standpoint, but I do think that there's significant room for improvement when it comes to preventative medicines, more tangible and actionable ways that clinicians and, and healthcare systems can actually offer care such that people are, are set on a path for prevention. Preventative diagnostics, I think the sky is the limit when it comes to finding ways to effectively drive prevention. The challenge that I see is twofold, and why I feel that this is a space that is not quite advancing at the pace that I would like to see it advance, is that the healthcare system operates on evidence and data and proof, and it should, because we're talking about human lives here. And so it's important to build a strong body of evidence on everything that you're doing. It's very difficult to prove prevention. If you're talking about many disease areas, you're thinking about following a large number of people for a long amount of time to basically show that an intervention truly prevented something. And so this, amongst many other reasons, is one of the factors, I think, that is limiting the ability for prevention to really be a view. With Terra Lumina, for example, as I mentioned, our initial go-to-market strategy is pharmaceuticals, but I would love to see a world where we can actually apply what we're doing in the world of nutraceuticals and consumer health to actually drive a new paradigm of preventative kind of approaches. Sana, if you could talk to your earlier self right now, before Oshi Health, before Terra Lumina, so basically your pre-founder self, what advice would you give to yourself? The thing that comes to mind immediately is cultivate a muscle of resilience. I think that I spent a lot of time growing up, you know, trying to be as perfect as possible. You know, I have a tendency to kind of be a bit of a perfectionist and fearing and avoiding failure as, as much as I can. And really what I think would have been a more effective strategy is not to avoid failure, but rather to learn how to come back from it as quickly as possible, to accept it, to not let it be such a defining kind of thing that keeps you down for so long, but rather to almost enjoy it as a part of the learning process. As an entrepreneur, I fail every day. And that's exactly why I believe that entrepreneurship is one of the best ways to experience exponential growth and learning. I don't think that there's another domain or career where you can learn as much as you do in entrepreneurship in as little of a time as you can. And so I would probably tell myself, don't fear failure, actually run towards it if you can and learn how to bounce back from it as fast as possible. Thanks. I think perfect conclusion to this block, I would say. And then jumping into our next one, which is our toolbox. So Sona, in this block, we have a few short questions for you and we call this block our toolbox. So it's basically like a short blitz interview. Are you ready to go? Yes. All right. 
So is there a book that everybody should read? Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. For me, this was a huge lever in understanding myself a little bit more and creating the right environment for me to thrive in when it comes to understanding when I need to activate this deeper thinking side of my brain and when I can um, allow the autopilot to run. Um, and I think even cooler, how to train my autopilot side of my brain to really take on some of the skills that I would like to do more effectively. Great. Thanks. Is there an app that everybody should download? Yeah, this is a tough one. My answer, if you would ask me like a year ago, would have been Headspace. I still love this kind of tool, meditation apps and things of that nature that really make something that's traditionally been very complex, very accessible to people. A lot of people have this resistance towards meditation. It's this very esoteric kind of, you know, woo woo type of way of, of living. But really, I don't think that it, it's like that. Everybody, whether or not you have a spiritual side, can benefit from meditation and just sort of slowing down your brain. And for me, tools like Headspace make it accessible for the masses. I think they don't even necessarily call it meditation. And, and they make it easier for people to basically execute on something that I think is, is quite challenging, but very beneficial. Is there a podcast that you love listening to? Yeah, I really like the the podcast, How I Built This. It's a podcast about entrepreneurship, about different entrepreneurs and founders telling the real war stories of how the most popular kind of platforms that we see today were actually built from the ground up. As an entrepreneur, it's very inspiring to hear these people's stories, in particular, the failures. I think that more and more this is changing, but historically, society has really been very hush-hush about failure in general. We, we like to shove it under the rug. There's this sense of you need to be ashamed and kind of hide your failures. And so for me, hearing other entrepreneurs talk about, yeah, how hard it was at certain times and how much things sucked at certain times resonates a lot with me, right? Because it's, it's an extremely difficult journey. And I think even more hearing how they actually were able to overcome those obstacles is also very inspiring. Do you have any favorite episode? I really liked this Airbnb one. I think that this was an interesting journey to listen to. All right. Is there a routine that you like to follow? Yeah. So in the morning, if there's time, I like to do at least 30 minutes of yoga. Not, not every day there, there's enough time for that, but I will at least always start my day off with five sun salutations. It doesn't take that long. It's only a couple of minutes, but it's the same consistent thing that I'm doing every day. And it's a message I'm sending to myself every morning that I'm worth taking care of, that I'm part of a larger journey. And, and it really kind of creates this sense of grounding and stability in the morning hours. So for me, that's probably the routine that I most follow. And who is an innovator, potentially with foreign roots, that everybody should know about? Yeah, this is a good question. I would say generally a person that I really admire who's driven a lot of innovation and, and novel kind of ways of thinking is Atul Gawande, who is an American doctor, but with South Asian roots that has written very authentically and honestly about the medical profession, about healthcare, and has offered a lot of challenging rhetoric around ways that we can actually improve and drive innovation in that space. And so for me, I would say this is someone that everyone should be, should be aware of. Great, noted. Last but not least, we would like you to have a chance to ask the question to our next guest. And what is the question that you would leave to your next guest? What is your favorite failure? Love it. <laughs> Okay, thanks, Ona. I think that would be a wrap. And thank you so much for being with us today and openly sharing your experiences. And I think a lot of our listeners will find this conversation very insightful, motivational, and educational, and will take meaningful learnings out of it. We wish you all the best and can't wait to see where Taradumina goes next. Sure, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, looking forward to next time. This season of Mostly Awesome Podcast is brought to you by CDTM. 
Center for Digital Technology and Management. This episode is a product of great teamwork together with Srajit Sakuja, Anne-Christine Ga, Julia Kozlovskaya, and Miriam Schmidt. If you like our podcast and you would like to support our work, please rate us on the platform you're listening on and tell your friends who might be interested in topics we discussed about Mostly Awesome. We'd like to invite inspiring guests with diverse cultural backgrounds to our podcast. Our inbox, podcast at cdtm.de, is open for warm intros. Thanks for tuning in. See you in two weeks. <laughs>